0: Started. Thanks for coming out in the rain. It's nice to see everybody. Um, so, we left off last Tuesday in the middle of this um, very wonderful midrash in Kirkade Rabbi about, um, about am going to visit Hishmael after he sent him off. Does anybody need a copy of it? So, one from what looking at
1: last week okay. Um, okay. So just to sort
0: of remind us where we were, if you remember, um Mael had uh, at the beginning of the Midrash, Ghan, and found a wife for himself from Arvot Moab. And the woman's name is Aisha. And actually, there are some other manuscripts where it's Aisha, which we'll talk about a little bit. in a little bit. Um, we're told that three years later, Abraham decides to go and visit his son Ishmael. He swears to Sarah that he won't get off his camel when he gets to the place that Ishmael is found. When he shows up, he arrives in the middle of the day, he shows up. Uh Ishmael and his wife Ishmael and his mother are not home, but Ishmael's wife is there and Avram says, uh, please give me some bread and some water. I'm so tired from my journey uh through the desert. And um and the wife says, Well what does the wife say?
1: It's, sorry, it's the the rest. this is the Midrash
0: the oh, okay. This is the Midrash. from is the Midrash the that we're looking at. Yeah, exactly. right. Okay. So what does the wife say?
1: No bread. We have no
0: bread and no water. So Abram says, okay, when Ishmael comes home, please give him the following message. Say that an old man came from Canaan to see you and uh, he said to tell you that the doorpost of your home is no good. And then Abraham leaves and Ishmael comes back and uh, his wife gives him this message and what is Ishmael's reaction? Right, he divorces the wife. Um, a couple of things, I think, are interesting, even just about the message, right? Why, why do you think Avram doesn't identify himself?
1: I'm sorry.
0: Why doesn't he identify himself? He just says, an old man came from Canaan to visit Ishmael, as opposed to saying, you know, tell Ishmael that his father was here. Well, maybe he did, uh,
1: Avram didn't like her, and then she act like, oh, you're dad, come in, come in, and then this way, you know. mm-hmm. The message
0: factor you had to get rid of. Yeah, right. So maybe she'd be less likely to give give over the message if she knew that it was Abraham or maybe she would behave differently. Yeah, Diane. It on. could be a test because
1: Abraham is known as possible, but it's the of God. So
0: Right, it could be that all along, the reason why Avram doesn't want to identify himself is that he's interested in how she'll treat a stranger. He's not so interested in how she'll treat his father-in-law. He wants to see, you know, if a stranger came by, how would she treat them? Because for him, the way that one treats strangers is really important. And so he wants to evaluate that about her, and so that's why he's kind of going undercover. What um, do you can think? What she has already
1: reduced him he could still
0: reveal his identity and say I caught you out and then leave the situation hanging and then who knows what she'll do before Ishmael comes home she'll clear out or retaliate in some way right so this is a way to sort of make sure the message gets to Ishmael in a a, a straightforward way as possible I totally think so Um, I also think it's interesting to to think about you know why does Abraham not wait for Ishmael to come home and tell him himself right why do you think he leaves
1: So, so Didn't
0: to Well, Sarah said don't get off your camel, right? So it could be practical, just only so long you can stick around if yeah, you can't you get, get off you your camel. <laughs>
1: camel. <laughs> it's
0: true, that could totally be, right? So that might be one reason. Um, yeah. She's not very
1: hospitable,
0: so why would you want to uh, Okay, she's not very hospitable, so it's hard to just sort of hang around outside waiting, right? That could be also. Yeah. Ah, it could be a critique of Ishmael, so maybe Abraham doesn't really want to see him if he's married to such a woman, right? That could be also. Yeah, I think all these things could be. I think it's also perhaps possible... Well, let's keep going. I will suggest something, but let's keep going. Okay, so that's, the first, that's sort of the first paragraph over here in the Hebrew, and if you're following along in the English, it's pretty much exactly in the middle of that paragraph in English. Okay, at the top of the next Hebrew paragraph, again, is anybody is anybody else missing a copy? I do have a few more here. don't have it with you. Okay, great. So we're told, <laughs> So now his mother goes, or he's divorced his first wife, so his mother goes and finds him a wife. This woman is from Hagar's family, right? So she's Egyptian. And this woman's name is Fatuma. And if you remember, actually, the, um, the if you have a JTF Tanakh near you, on page 38, right, which is chapter chapter 21 of Greshit we were told that um, Ishmael lives in the desert and in verse 21 we're told <laughs> He lives in the desert of Paran and his mother finds him a wife uh, from Egypt and I would say the first half of the Midrash seems to be situated kind of right before that verse, right? It's sort of inserting itself in, right? There's this story about a wife from Moab that doesn't appear anywhere in the Torah. And now the Midrash kind of picks up again with that verse from the Torah of uh, Ishmael's mother finding him a wife from from Egypt, which the Midrash understands is coming from her family. This second wife's name is Fatuma three more years go by, and Abraham once again decides to go and visit his son Ishmael And he once again swears to Sarah that he won 't get off his camel when he gets to the place that Ishmael is found right This is sort of the second Hebrew paragraph over here on the left um, and uh, right so now it 's been six years since Ishmael has left right and still
1: Oh, okay. No worries. Actually,
0: it's <laughs> just um, a little breakdown. Oh, okay. No Okay. So, so um right. Six years have gone by, but still, Sarah is very worried. That if Abraham were to get off his camel, right, maybe he might not get back on his camel again. So um, he makes her, he, she makes him swear once again that he won't get off his camel. Uh, Abraham goes, and we're told once again he arrives in the middle of the day. And he now finds Ishmael's wife, but now it's his second wife, right? Wife, Batuma. He says to her, Where is Ishmael? Well, he and his mother went off to uh, shepherd some camels in the wilderness. They were not here right now. Amara, ki nashimi So Avraham says to the wife, please give me some bread and some water because I'm tired from my journey. And so she takes some bread and some water and she gives it to him. Amad so Abraham kadosh almino. So Avraham now... Uh, Ahmad could either mean that he actually stands up, right, he gets off his camel, perhaps violating his oath, but Ahmad also sometimes, sometimes just means to sort of to be still, right, he sort of kind of stays in place, and he prays to God on behalf of his, on behalf of his son, And suddenly Ishmael's home becomes full of all manner of great blessings. Uh, and then he seems to leave, right, he doesn't wait for Ishmael. <laughs> when Ishmael comes back, his wife tells him what happened, right? This man came, I gave him some bread and some water, suddenly our house was you know filled with all these great things. And Ishmael knows now that all along his father's mercies have been with him. As the verse from psalm says, as a father has mercy on his, on his children, the sense is that Abraham still feels towards Ishmael like a father and he's, he's loved him all along. And that seems to be sort of the main point of this Midrash, right? That even though Abraham has sent Ishmael off, and we don't in the text hear about him speaking to him ever again. Um, really all along Abraham loves him and um, I think that, that I would say that that seems to me to be the overall point of the Midrash but it's interesting to think about how the Midrash tries to get to that point right what, you know given that the author wants us to know that Avraham really loves Ishmael right he hasn't turned on him he really cares about him um, it's interesting to think about how exactly this Midrash gets crafted to make that point um, uh, so I, I think a few things are interesting about it one is that it seems to me to be very much modeled on The description in the Torah of how we know that Abraham loves Yitzchak, right? How do we know that Abraham cares about Yitzchak? Right. there are sort of two main stories of Avram and Yitzhak, right? One of them is where Avram tries to kill Yitzhak and not take out What's the, What's the other sort of main oh, he story? He looks for a wife, right? right? Avram really cares about who Yitzhak will marry, right? He sends his servants with the ten camels laden with treasure, right? He's really invested in finding an appropriate spouse for Yitzhak, and that, in the Torah, is kind of the way that we know that Abraham that's the way Avram demonstrates his, his concern for Yitzhak. With Ishmael, right, there's been a moment where Ishmael also almost died because of Abraham, right? So that's already happened, but... But how do we know that Abraham cares about Ishmael? Then I mean, you suggests the way the way that we know that Abraham cares about Ishmael is that Abraham also cares very much about who Ishmael is married to, right? He wants to make sure that Ishmael is sort of married to an appropriate spouse. And if you remember, in in the in the verses in Breshit, what Avram tells his servant when he sends him off to find a wife for Yitzchak is just find you know find someone from my family, but when the servant actually not even from my family find someone from where I come from who's willing to come back to Canaan, um, and the servant on his own devises this text of. Um, figuring out, you know, who, who among, you know, which girl will be hospitable and that person will be appropriate. Remember, the servant says, whichever, you know, if I, if I ask the girl for water and she gives water not just to me, but also to my camels, then I'll know that she's the one that is appropriate for Yitzhak. Um, and the Midrash over here, I think, uses a similar test, right? How do we know if the woman will be an appropriate spouse for Yitzhak? It will also be, you know, is she kind to strangers? The first wife is not, right? She sort of fails the test. The second wife passes and, and it seems that abraham has been happy. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that Abraham never actually sees Ishmael in this midrash. right? And it could be just sort of practically, right? He arrives when Ishmael isn't there. He's taken this oath not to get off his camel. There's only so long he can stay there, right? That could be. Um, but you also get the sense that he might specifically be trying to arrive at a time when Ishmael won't be there, right? If he really wants to check out Ishmael's wife, maybe the best way to do that is not when Ishmael is home, but some other time. It reminds me always a little bit of, like, people who sort of call someone at home when they know that they're not there because they just want to leave a message and they don't want to actually talk to them, right? You know, is it that he like shows up in the middle of the day and he says, oh, I can't believe I've missed seeing Ishmael? Or is it that he, you know, specifically sort of figures out when it's least likely that Ishmael will be home and he goes there, Good because certainly in the set right, even if in the first case Yishmael Abram uh, Abraham doesn't stick around because the wife isn't so friendly, in the second case it seems like, you know, she is giving him bread and water. If he you know, once he hasn't seen his son in six years, he would think he might stay long enough to say hello. Um but he doesn't and, and I think you almost get the sense that his mission is really less to see Ishmael and more to sort of make sure that Ishmael's life is, is going along okay which is going to be defined for the Midrash as you know he's, he's married in an, an appropriate person for him um, some other things that I find really interesting about it um, it's interesting that w- what does Abraham ask for from the woman bread and, water. bread and water okay now how does bread and water show up in our story that's what
1: he said. Right. So
0: first of all, that's specifically right. The two things that he gives Hagar when he sends her off is bread and water, right? Um, And that's you know they run out of water, so he's specifically asking for the things that he gave them for. But if you remember, the first wife in the story is from Moab, and Ammon and Moab are very famous in the Torah for specifically for not offering bread and water to the people of Israel as they're traveling through the wilderness, right? The reason why we're told Lo Yavo the reason why uh, men of Amulimov are not supposed to be able to marry or join the people of Israel, It's specifically because the things that they don't offer Israel as they're traveling are bread and water, and so the Midrash, I think, you know, when it's looking for an example of inhospitality, you know, it makes sense that the first wife should be from Moab, because she is the one who doesn't offer bread and water, and that is the thing that uh, that is not offered. Actually, also, another thing that's interesting, when Abraham first greets those three angels who come to visit him, the first thing he offers them also is bread and water. Afterwards, he gives them a lot of other things. He gives them meat and butter and so forth, but in the beginning he just offers them bread and water, so it's like that is kind of the core hospitality, right? Offering bread and water. Uh, Abraham does that, the second wife does that, the first wife doesn't, and Moab doesn't. So, you know, you sort of have these lines of, you know, the people who are hospitable and the people who are, who are, who are not hospitable. Um, another thing I think is interesting about it are the, the women's names, right? The first wife's name is Aifa or Aisha. The second wife's name is Fatuma. Um, these are names that are um, important within the, the Muslim tradition, right? Aisha is one of the wives of Muhammad. Fatima is one of his daughters. Um, and a lot of people think that one of the ways that *Pirkei rabbi Eliezer*, the, the authorship, is, is assumed to be in a country that's under Muslim control, partly because of sort of moments like this in the midrash, where the names that are given are specifically names that resonate with Muslim culture. Um, and it seems that the author of this midrash is trying to make a point, not just kind of about the Bible, but maybe. Also, a more contemporary point, right? That basically, Abraham and Ishmael don't have any problem with one another. They really love each other very much. Um, You know, for whatever reason, you know, because of Sarah, Ishmael needs to go away, but it's not because of any um, falling apart of Abraham and Ishmael's relationship. And one way to sort of signal kind of this contemporary message is by giving these wives kind of names that resonate with Muslim culture, even though the first wife is actually not so good, right? Aisha, she's not, not a great character over here. Um, one more thing that I wanted to say about this Josh which is I don't remember sorry
1: yeah um, I'm sorry can you just mm-hmm. sure. mention the issue of the doorpost what that it's very sort of Oh, absolutely. Your post is so good. It sends you a
0: key link. Yes, that is a great point. And then it's actually. Excellent point, and that was totally related to the thing that I had forgotten, so thank you so much. So, right, he, he remembers, so he gives the first wife this cryptic message of your doorpost isn't good. Your doorpost seems to be code for your wife, right? The wife being sort of the mainstay of the home, so your doorpost is no good. Um, it is interesting, it, it's interesting to me that Yishmael not only immediately understands the code, right? The wife says, an old man came from Canaan to see you and said your doorpost isn't good, and Yishmael immediately understands that A, the old man is his father, and B, the doorpost is referring to a, a negative opinion of the wife, right? So that's interesting to start with. It's even more interesting to me that Ishmael immediately acts on his father's advice, right? Ishmael could say, look, you know, you sent me off into the desert. I almost died there. I haven't heard from you for three years. You come to visit me. You don't even stay long enough to actually see me. And the only thing you can tell me is that you don't like my wife, right? Ishmael could just easily, kind of totally discount his father's advice, right? And yet, in in this Midrash, Ishmael immediately understands what his father is saying and takes his advice to heart. And acts on it right away. You get the sense that Yishmael feels really connected to Abraham and the Sidrash, right? He wants to do what his father thinks is, is good for him. Um, another thing that's interesting is that it seems that Yishmael on his own, this is relating to what Diane said before, Yishmael on his own um, maybe is somewhat at fault for, for choosing this inappropriate wife but by that same note Hagar very much comes out very positively right she is the one who's able to find the appropriate spouse right she's the one who goes and finds Yishmael this lovely wife who is very hospitable um, and this is actually part of Pirkei general Eliezer's um, general uh, approbation of Hagar right in Pirkei Drabi Eliezer the, the wife that uh, that Abraham takes after, um, after Sarah dies. Keturah, the Midrash over here, will understand as being Hagar, right? Because her, her blessings, her, not her blessings, her deeds are as pleasant as, as the Keturah, as the infants. So um, Hagar throughout Pirkei Dereviyah is seen very positively, and this, I think, is one more example of that, right? He's the one who is able to find the, the correct spouse for him. Um, it might be that, you know, there's a general distrust of people, men finding their own wives. Maybe it's always better if a parent or someone else does it for them.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, when you say check your door close, what we think of is results. uh are no do there. Mm-hmm. And if you go uh, according to what you said about the names and, and trying to believe that uh-huh. the times walking well, this is not good, that you have... Um, problems in the house, and if you change your system, then you have and
0: then they will after they change the wife. So, oh, ah, yeah, that yeah, awesome. that could be awesome. But I think I think it is a very specific, I mean, Ishmael seems to understand it as being very much about the wife, right? Because Abraham, Abraham can't say, tell Ishmael when he comes home that an old man came and said you're no good, right? Because then he wouldn't give the message over. So it kind of has to be like a code that she won't understand, but but he will. But that is interesting, I guess, to the extent that we think of mezuzot as being really important and connected to the peace in the home, I, I think there is a sense that what happens at the threshold of your home is important, right? You know, are you welcoming to people who come across your threshold? You know, what, uh, given, that the thre- given that the doorpost is kind of the division between the inner life and the outer public life, it makes sense that that would be something that people are concerned about, both in terms of the status of the Mississot and also in terms of the way the people on the inside of the house kind of interact with the people in the outside world. That, that makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Abraham yeah. um, is also setting the bar lower mm-hmm. for Ishmael's wife because when both Lot and Abraham earlier mm-hmm. are visited by strangers, they don't wait for them to ask, can mm-hmm. you give me something? They just immediately jump up and say, oh, you're here. Let me wash your feet and let mm-hmm. me give you food. So you know, technically she should, as soon as this guy shows up, she should have
0: said So that's interesting, although if you remember with the servant, when he finds Rifka, he right, right. told deal is, I'll ask her for some water, and then she'll offer more things,
1: right? It was a spring, so it wasn't your house. I, I yeah. thought that also, but I know it's a little different. There's a lot of people there yeah. shows up at the spring. As yeah. opposed to someone shows up in terrorist at your
0: door. Yeah, I think, I mean, that is totally true. I think it's possible that it is a little bit gendered, though it might be that it was inappropriate for, it might have been thought of as inappropriate for women to sort of like stand outside and call people in, but if they were specifically asked for something, they were supposed to respond. I'm not sure, but it, it, it makes sense to me that there might have been a sense that like the woman who would sort of stand at her doorway and flag people in might be a little bit more suspect. Although that is exactly what Yael does for Sisra, and she's very much praised for doing that. That, right? Remember in the story in uh, the Book of Judges when um, the general Sisra is Yaël stands at her doorway and she says, Lai, right, come to me and then she uh, then kills him. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you normally know, ask for her husband. Right. And he's not here. Your husband's not here, come in and have something. Right. And you right. this way, and he's not
1: yeah. here, have something to, do. Have yeah. something
0: to That's true, right? Maybe he is kind of helping her out by giving her like feeding her the question that will then allow her to Well, in the second case, she does that, right? right. 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 In the the first case, she doesn't. And
1: not only she should not do, but he says
0: there's something wrong with your door but she doesn't even ask, what are you talking about? Right. She doesn't care. Right. Yeah. It's also funny, because you imagine that each one is probably living in a tent, so this whole image of a girl is very interesting also. Like, it's not totally clear to me. Maybe it's like the stake over that, you know, that holds up. I don't know. Interesting. Yeah? The ending is very, very close, And it
1: shows... um, additional reaction to knowing that the father has blessed him. Mm-hmm. Up until now, we don't know what's happening to and I mean this is big rush, but it may be a comment on what the relationship will be so that in the end when our um, is dies, mm-hmm. that both his sons will have a relationship with him mm-hmm. at that point.
0: Oh, I definitely think so, right? I think the major work that this Midrash is trying to do is it's trying to answer two questions, right? First, The first question I think it's trying to answer is, Avram seems to really love Ishmael and be very invested in him. So how could he possibly send him off and never, never care about what happens to him, right? That just seems, given, given the relationship that we've seen between Avram and Ishmael up until the point that he sends him away, there's something very, very odd about that. So I think the Midrash, first of all, wants to explain, you know, How could that be? And the basic answer that that this Midrash provides is, well, it isn't. You know, Abraham does still love him and does still care about him. And I think the second major question is, if Abraham had, in fact, sent Ishmael off, never inquired after him, didn't care about him at all, then why would Ishmael bother coming back to bury him? And so I think the Midrash kind of sandwiches itself in between those two questions and tries to sort of shed shed light on both, because otherwise it's it's a little bit strange. The other thing, though, I think is important to know about Ishmael, and we're going to see... today, another midrash that does this, Ishmael very much gets reclaimed by the rabbis in a way that, for example, Esav doesn't, right? Ishmael, you know, even even the texts that assume that Ishmael had sort of sinned in some manner originally, in general, sort of, there's an assumption somehow that Ishmael makes his way back into the fold somehow, right? Whether it's a midrash like this that says it all along, Abraham loved him, we'll see another midrash later today that will claim that Ishmael... um, uh, does shuva, right, and, you know, there'll be proof for that also. Um, and I think one of the ways that we can see that the rabbis have reclaimed the biblical character of Ishmael is that there are um, rabbinical characters named Ishmael, right? I remember one of the rabbis that we saw in the Midrash last week was Rabbi Ishmael. There's another Ishmael who's also a Kohen Gadol. So I think there's a sense that um, when a community sort of claims a name, that's a way of knowing that the character has also been sort of accepted, right? We don't have any people named Esau, but we do have these rabbis named Ishmael, um, just on a totally side note another kind of interesting moment where that's happened um, the name Burya has had sort of a similar kind of resurgence right so I think for many generations Burya was seen as this kind of liminal character right a woman who learned Torah and came to a bad end and you kind of want to stay far away from her but in the past you know 60 years or so there are many schools that are called Burea and lots of young women or little girls who are named Burya. so I think there's a way in which um, you can tell that a community has sort of reclaimed the character when it starts to sort of take the name on again, and sort of use it in that way. Um,
1: okay, yeah, please. I think this midrash also helps sort of set up and support the midrash. That's also why did God have to say, I can't have practice in place to take asherahata it's up, because the binhah is in place to take asherahata, could still be Yisrael?
0: Sorry. Yeah, totally true, right? Even though, sorry, what?
1: Did you turn Oh,
0: sure, sure, sure. Series referring, there's a famous mid we'll, we'll see the pasuk in a few minutes, but um, when, actually, you know, let, let's even look at the pasuk, right? Let's, if we turn to, uh, to chapter 22, right? So, so far, what we've seen is the Torah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah, which was chapter 21, which is the story of the birth of Yitzhak and the sending away of Yishmael. The Torah reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah is in chapter 22, which is page 39 in the JPS Tanah. Um the very first verse in chapter twenty two is Bahi Akara Dvarim Ha'Ela, after all these matters, um Bah Abraham, God tests Abraham, Bayomarilab Abraham, God says to Abraham, God says to him, Abraham and Abraham says, Hine, here I am ready to do what is necessary and in verse 2 um, God says take your son your only one the one that you love go to the land of Moriah, and bring him raise him up there as an offering on one of the the hills that I will that I will tell you um, so we have I'm just going to get a
1: mark I right, So, this is.
0: Not that you have, take your son that
1: you have, your only one, a Sarah Avta that you love.
0: Was talking about is that why does God have to be so specific? Why couldn't, you know, why didn't God just use one of right? Why do you have to call him your son, your only one, the one that you love? And there's a midrash that uh, God says, Take your son, and Aharon says, Well, I have two sons. And God says, no, no, your only son. And Abraham says, no, each son is the only son to his mother, right? Asherah, well, the one that you love, and Abraham says. I love both of them. And then God has to specify it needs So uh, Suri was saying that maybe one of the reasons why that Midrash kind of reads this pasuk in this way is that there is a sense that Abraham does still very much love and care about Ishmael even after he's sent him away in chapter 21. Um, another thing, though, that's useful about notice about paying attention to this verse is that the cadences are very familiar to us, right? The cadences of this pasuk are supposed to remind us a lot of the uh, original call that Abraham was given, right? At the very beginning of Parshat Lech um, Lecha, right? If you turn back to page 21, to chapter 12, right? The verse there is Lech Lecha Mimoladetcha right? From your your native land from the place of sorry from your land, from the place of your birth, from your father's household, right? There's a sense of sort of this layering on of the of the difficulty of it, right? Not just your land, but also the place where you were born, not just the place where you were born, but also your father's house. The lecha, you should go. And here too, there's kind of a layering on of the difficulty, right? Your son, your only one, the one that you love, you cut. The language of lecha appears in both places, right? You should go. There's a sense of an important journey. Um, and in both places the journey is to somewhere that's kind of not specified right in chapter 12 it was um, El ha'aret asher the lamb that I will show you over here it's to one of the hills that I will tell you so there's a sense that Avram is going to be asked to give up something that is very difficult he's going to be asked to go on a journey and he doesn't even know where he's going to wind up from. he has to sort of be willing to set front, to set out to set forward to do that um, another thing that's interesting is that the story is framed in, in verse 1 in chapter 22 this is back on page 39 as a misayon, right, we're told the Elohim Nisa Abraham, God tests Abraham, the Midrashim are very interested in, you know, what does it mean to test Abraham, why Why is God doing that um, there's one Midrash that says well, uh, the point of the test is that people might say, oh, the reason why Abraham was, so, uh, was such a good guy was that he had so many good things, right? You know, if I was showered with blessings the way Abraham was, I might also be a really righteous person. And so uh, the Midrash and Greshit Rabbah says, the Nisayon is really not, it's not so much for Abraham himself, but it's to make him into a nace, to make him into sort of a banner by saying, look, you know, look, Abraham didn't have it easy, he had to do many difficult things, and yet he still remained really righteous. Um, so different midrash, says actually, it's like a, um, it's like a flax worker, you know, you sort of, you beat the flax to make it be better, and so God sort of tests over hands, sort of give him a chance to shine also. It's kind of a disturbing image, honestly. Um, anyway. So uh, Avram is given, is given uh, this, this, you know, these set of instructions. We're told in verse 3, here on page 39, He wakes up early in the morning, He gets his donkey ready, He takes his uh, two servants with him, He gets everything ready, he takes the wood, he takes his son, and he goes to the place that God tells him. Um, in uh, verse 4, we're told, on the third day, Abraham looks up with his eyes. Uh, he sees the place in the distance, right at the. Right? He, somehow he knows that this is the place that God wants him to go to. Um, in verse 5, he tells the two servants, you stay back here with the donkey. We will go. Uh, Over to there, we'll we'll worship and we'll return. Um, Many midrashim read a lot into this verse as well. They say, why does he say ad ko? We'll go until ko, until there. Uh, The midrash says Abraham is hinting to God that Abraham remembers God's promise to Abraham of ko Zarecha, right? Your your descendants will be as many as the as the stars. Um, And so Abraham is basically saying, God, you you promised me all these descendants, you know how are you asking me to kill my, my, my only remaining descendant? Um, and the, the plural form of and we will worship and we will return, the Midrashim see it as kind of a little bit of a prophecy that Avram has, that really both of them will return. It's not just that I will return, but that uh, the two of us, Avram and Yitzchak, will return. Uh, then we're told, Avram now takes the wood for the for the offering, he places it on Yitzhak, right, Yitzchak is carrying it, um, the Midrashim here too, there's actually this very evocative one, the Midrash Rabbah says that, Yitzhak carrying the wood, um, is kizesh to ainskluvo it's like a person having to carry the cross on his back, right, a person mm-hmm. who's about to be crucified, having to carry his own cross, that's what it's like for Yitzhak to have to carry his own wood, for his own death, it's right? so a very kind of crazy image, right, um, and uh, uh, Abraham takes the, the fire with him, and the, the knife, and the two of them go together. Uh, in verse seven, we're told, Vayomer Yitzchak el Abraham aviv, vayomer avi. So now Yitzchak speaks to his father Abraham, and he says, my father. And Abraham says, Hineni v'ni, I'm here, my son. And Yitzchak asks a good question. He says, "Hineha v'ha'itzin Here's the fire, and here's the wood, but we're missing the animal for the sacrifice. Um, Soon we'll see this in Midrash that the Midrash will look very closely at the wording of that first passage. Um, Abraham responds to his son. And he says, Elohim, your Eloha, selo, la, uh, God will show the animal for the sacrifice of my son. The two of them walk together, right? The Midrash will understand at this point that Yitzchak really knows what's going on, right? It's true that Abraham doesn't say to him outright, you are that animal, but the assumption is at this point, Yitzchak understands. Right. The truth is, a lot of this story kind of depends on how old you picture your clock as being. Right. If you picture your clock as I don't know, a six-year-old. He might not understand from this. He might just think like, okay, we'll find the animal as we go. Um, If you think of him as an adult, then you assume that he does understand what's going on. Um, Many of the Midrashim are very invested in having Yitzhak be older for that reason, right? There are these Midrashim that calculate his age of being 37 at the time of the Akedah. And you can see why, right? If it's a story about an elderly man and a 37-year-old young man going together, there's a sense that Yitzhak has a lot of agency and sort of choosing to be a part of this. If you picture your class as a six or seven-year-old, it becomes a lot more disturbing, right? Then it doesn't seem like he has any idea what's going on or any ability to to resist.
1: So So they
0: say that he's 37 because at the end of the chapter, we're told about Rivka's birth, um, and we know that Yitzchak is. I'm trying to remember exactly how they get to this. The end of the chapter, yes, we're to, at the end of the chapter, we're told about Rifkah's birth. We know that Yitzchak is 40 when he, when he, he marries yeah. them, Just and we know be, that, right. and we know that Sarah is 120. Uh, that must be it. We know that Sarah. Sorry, not even so much about Rifkah. Rifkah being three comes from the end of it. It's more that we know that we, that Sarah is 127 years old when she dies. If you assume that her death is connected to the akedah, right, which we'll see many midrashim like to make that connection, if you assume that her death is connected to the Akeda and Yitzhak was born when Sarah was ninety, that would make Yitzhak be thirty-seven at the time of the Akeda. But right, the verses never connect up her death with the Akeda, right? It could be. That
1: he's innocent of knowing what's gonna to happen to him or
0: something. Yeah, or that like within the context of this story he is you know, he's sort of the young one kind of you know, being taken in by his father. Um but but I but I think it I mean in your mind's eye, or at least in my mind's eye, the story plays out very differently if you're picturing a seven or eight year old, different for picturing a thirty-seven year old, right? It's a totally different story.
1: Yeah. Right,
0: and, and even in the Ishmael story as well, right? The sense he is right. Might be
1: older.
0: Right, he might he might be older, but but it could be that also his mother is sort of treating him as as a young boy
1: there. Here, yeah, Abraham uh, he is, he is treating and and Right. Exactly. <laughs>
0: Right, that could totally be off the right From his perspective, totally um, Okay, so the two of them walk together In verse 9 we're told marlo They get to the place that God has, has told him Abraham, bath. Abraham then builds an altar Vaya He uh, sets up the wood He finds the clock. He places his bound on the mitzbeach, on top of the wood. Abraham now sort of sends forth his hand. He takes the knife in order to slaughter his sack. This is the moment of high drama. The angel of God now calls out to Abraham from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham stops and says, Here I am. And uh, in verse 12, the angel says, don't send forth your hand against the boy. Don't do anything to him at all. There's actually a great midrash over here that says, How come the angel says, Right? What happened to the knife? Right? Why is the angel saying, Don't put your hand against you know, don't lift your hand up? Shouldn't the angel be saying, Don't move that don't move that knife? And the angel so the midrash says, Well, the knife dissolved from the angel's tears. The angels are crying over the clock. The knife dissolves, so the knife isn't there anymore. And that part is fine. But then the midrash gets even crazier. Some of the midrash says, why does it say, Al tishlach yad el Because once once Avram doesn't have the any knife anymore, Avram says to the angel, well, maybe I could try to lay the clock instead. And the angel says, no, no. Al tishlach yad So then Avram says, well, maybe I can just let a little bit of his blood, right? I already have him bound here at the sacrifice, right? I can, you know, get a little bit of his blood, and then the angel has to say, I'll pass the little muma. No, don't, don't do anything to him at all, right? Which is crazy, right? It's a crazy idea, and it's, it's, I think part of what the Midrash is suggesting is that Abraham is sort of almost in a particular kind of religious euphoria, right? He is, like, ready to do this thing that he thinks God wants him to do, and it's a little bit hard for him to step back, right? You know, I'm sure it was yeah, hard right. for him to do it, you know,
1: but... so much to get to that
0: Exactly. He is kind of in the moment, you know, he's, he's ready to do what he thinks God wants him to do, and it's, it's a little bit difficult to sort of pull himself back out. And the angel wants to say, no, really, don't hurt him at all. Don't do anything. I, hear so. I heard this but someone was saying that we don't think there's a
1: greatness of Abraham came, that he was prepared to sacrifice, mm-hmm. but he says the greatness of Abraham came, that he was able to stop himself, yeah. from I think that... At that m- point, he is, was so committed to doing it. Mm-hmm. to be able to not do the job. Yeah. But he really had to pull himself back out from that commitment
0: it or Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me, right? It, yeah. it, you know, it, it, I think it's often the case, right? Sometimes with things that are very hard to do, it, it then becomes hard to not do them also if you're, like,
1: if you've worked so hard to get to the point of doing it, Yeah. I'm just worried by this story mm-hmm. because sort of the epitome of the horrible things that Citans did was mm-hmm. to sacrifice their children. you could one thing that's probably the most horrible thing, mm-hmm. was child to to sacrifice. So for God to turn around and ask Abraham to do something that represents the essence of everything theoretically that Abraham would reject. You know, does that we like ever could that be? And, and the only way I understand it is sort of the opposite that he kind of went into this just knowing somehow this is not what God's going to do. He's just going just like he just knew something is going to happen. Mm-hmm. It, it's a test and he will not make me do this. This is just not going to happen. Because otherwise you'd say, well this is what, you know, when he turned around and said to go, this is like This is what you're asking me to do, like this thing that is contrary to everything you've taught me, and you're going to turn, and you're no better than those gods, and I'm not going to do this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that is
0: definitely a reading of it, right? It, certainly, that I midrash mean, that has him saying, you know, right, that seems to sort of indicate that Avram really did think that somehow it was going to work out, that you would be killed. So like that
1: would just reject you know Yeah,
0: I mean, so that is That is certainly a reading of it. The, you know, but there is, I think, certainly another very strong reading that what makes this a powerful story is that Avram really did think he was going to kill his son, you know. And, but, but it, you know, it, it, it's a really hard story, right? I mean, I think it's a story that, that is deliberately difficult and, and people tend to feel very strongly about it, right? Some people feel like Abraham, you know, fails his test because he should have argued with God and he should have said, no, I won't do this. And other people see it as kind of this moment of, of ultimate faith. So it's, I, th- I, think it's mm-hmm. I think it's tricky. Um, I should say, though, the, the, the particular kind of lens that I wanted us to look at this story um, through is, is sort of the, we'll, we'll, re- maybe we'll quickly read through the rest of the verses in the story, but the story itself is a very, tight story about Abraham and Isaac. right? There really aren't any other characters in it, right? It's just the two of them, right? Abraham takes his son. It's the two of them alone on the mountain. It's God and the angel sort of preventing the sacrifice. But one of the things that's very interesting is we'll see it through several Midrashim that uh, both Sarah and Ishmael wind up sort of haunting the story, right? There's a way in which the Midrash kind of constantly sort of inserts those two other characters who are who are not here at all. And given that what we've been looking at, you know, are the... the Toriing on the the two days of Rosh Hashanah, I'm kind of interested in the way that that earlier story kind of winds up threading its way through the, through this other one. But this story itself is, of course, a, a magnificent story that deserves you know hours of, of thought on its own, partly because it is so difficult, and people do feel you know very very strongly about it. Um, okay, but let's just sort of quickly read through read through the remaining verses. Um, so so right, Abraham said, maybe I'll strangle him in the mikdash. the so just says, no no, don't touch him, don't do anything to him at all. Um, uh, and now uh, the angel provides Abram with this very beautiful blessing, right? The angel says, Now I know that you are in fact a God-fearing person. Right? You haven't uh, held back. You haven't kept your son. You're only one from me. Abraham then looks up. He sees this uh, ram that is caught in the in the... In the in the thicket and he uh, sacrifices the ram instead of his son and he calls the place now Hashem Yireh right God will uh, God will see right? God is seen, will see or, or is seen um, the angel calls out to Aram the second time in verse 15 and says um, Bishmatin Um Hashem, right? God takes an oath and says, Kiyan Asher Asita, Tadavar Hazet, Velochasach, Bilchat, Yachidecha, right? Because you've done the same, you haven't held back from offering up your son, your only one. Kivarech Abarachacha, Baharba Arbeit Zarachacha, Kikhoch Be'ashamaim, I'll bless you, I'll make your descendants as many as the stars, Vikachol Asher Sakayam, and as the sand, Birash Zaracha Et Shara Oibab, your descendants will uh, sort of inherit their enemies. Your, your descendants will be um, through your descendants all the other nations will be blessed as well because you have, you've listened to me then in verse 19 we're told Abraham now returns to his servants right the Midrashim of course will ask what questions Right. So Avram returns to his servants, right? The midrashim will say, "Well, where is Yitzchak? Right? What's going on?" Right? And then there's this whole other tradition, right? What happens to Yitzchak after the Akeidah? Where does he go, right? So you know, there's that uh, one tradition that he goes off to the place that people conveniently disappear to in the midrash when we don't see them in the text, which is the yeshiva of Shem the Eber. It's right. always a good place to be tucked away for a while. Um, other midrashim say that uh, that. Maybe Yitzchak really was sacrificed, right, in, in some manner and somehow doesn't come back. Like there's a whole whole world over there about what happened to Yitzchak. But anyway, Abraham comes back to his servants, um, and uh, they go back to Beersheba, and Abraham of dwells there in Beersheba. Um, and at the very end of the chapter, Abraham gets this news that his brother has had a whole host of children, and that kind of gets, gets us to the end of chapter 22. So a few things about this, right? One is, as I was saying, it is a pretty tight story, right? There's not a lot of extra information the story that it very much stays focused on our two main characters is Abraham and Yzlaq and their conversations together. Um one thing that, that people even started pointing out last week is that there are certain ways in which this story is very similar to chapter 21, right? There are, in both cases, um, Avraham is sort of being asked to give up a child, right? In both cases, he sort of wakes up early in the morning to do it. Remember, he wakes up early to send off Hagar and Ishmael here. He wakes up early to stand off on this journey to sacrifice his chak. Um In both cases, an angel saves the child from dying, right? Ishmael is about to die of thirst. Uh, the clock is about to die because his father is about to kill him, and an angel shows up in both cases and saves the boy. Um, and actually, in both cases, there's also this. Um, uh, there's also a, a promise that that uh, the, the boy who's now survived, or the young man who's now survived, will become a great nation. Right? So in that way, the the stories themselves are, you know, they sort of in in a rough way they kind of um, resonate with one another. Um, Certainly within the Islamic tradition, right, the the key story is the sacrifice of Ishmael, right? That's the the thing that people reenact, that Muslims reenact on their um, their pilgrimages, right? They reenact Hagar's search for water. There's, I think, one pilgrimage where you you have to sort of complete three circuits around the mountain to remind them of the three times that Hagar went running off looking for water in their traditions. There's a sense that the story of, like, the near death of the, of the boy, is, is, is key, you know, both in the Jewish tradition and, the, and in the Islamic tradition. We certainly, uh, the Tbilot of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, many times sort of uh, recall the binding of Isaac as kind of a key theological moment for us. Um, but what, what, I, what I wanted us to look at for a little bit in, in our remaining time today are the ways in which, even in our tradition where, the, you know, the binding of Isaac is kind of the major story, there is a way in which the story of the is kind of... Um, uh, People throughout with these kind of mentionings of of, of Sarah and of Ishmael. So let me give out a couple of um, examples. Here is a Midrash from Rishi Rabbah. Rishi Rabbah, again, is, is a relatively early Midrash. It's usually thought to have been put together at around 500 or so CE um, in the land of Israel. And um, okay, first Midrash over here says Yitzchak and Ishmael one day were arguing. Right, and you'll see the argument sounds very much like a sibling sort of argument. Amar, Ani One of them, this case said, "Actually, I'm better than you because I was circumcised when I was 13 years old." and the other one, Yitzhak said, "No, no, Ani I'm better than you, because I was circumcised at eight days." Now, this is an interesting conversation to start. Right? What do you think? What is this argument really about? What does it mean to say I'm better than you because I was circumcised for 13 years I'm better than you because I was circumcised for 18 years? Who does that? Ah, so it could be who does Abraham love more? Right, that could be part of it. That could totally be.
1: What, what else could it be? What else, what else could it be? Right? Just, yeah. created sacrifice, Uh-huh. The baby doesn't really know what's 13 yeah, right? So
0: be who, right? Who made the greater sacrifice? And this is certainly something, and in fact, Yishmael is going to say that in the next line very clearly, right? Um, Marlo Yishmael, this is the uh, second line over here, Actually, I'm better than you because at 13, I could have resisted and I didn't, but you, Yitzchak, you, you were a little eight-year-old baby. You had no choice and no agency, so clearly I'm better. So the argument that I'm better because I was circumcised at 13 is a little bit easier to grasp, right? Because I... Had a say in it, and I submitted to it, and I agreed to it. I think Yitzhak's argument, that was kind of interesting, right? Why would it be better to be circumcised at eight days? Well, oh, no, so that, that is certainly true, but, but why why would Yitzhak be able to say to Ishmael, I am better than you because I was circumcised at eight days? Right, certainly from the experience of the person being circumcised, we would definitely agree with
1: it. God's advantage.
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I think that maybe what Yitzhak is saying to Ishmael is, not just I'm better, but I am clearly the intended son, right? I am the covenantal child because I got my circumcision when it was supposed to happen, right? You know, God said that babies should be circumcised at eight days old. I was the first one to get the circumcision at the appointed time. And so therefore... I'm really the one, I'm really the better one. And the better one here means like the intended heir, right? The covenantal son, um, And I think that's where the, the fight becomes a little bit more loaded, right? It's not just about kind of who has more toys or, you know, who's kind of, you know, the dad's favorite. I think it's also about like, who's the real child, right? Which... I have to say, I think in a lot of families, is, is often the undercurrent of an argument, right? Who's the real favorite? Who's the real child of the family? And here, this is, what, this is what Yitzhak and Yitzhak are arguing about. Yitzhak says, I'm really the better one. I'm the most preferred one because I made choices, right? I had the opportunity to resist and I didn't and you did not. And Yitzhak's counter-argument is, well, no, I'm the, I'm the intended one because... I'm the one, I'm the fulfillment of the promise, right? God said children should be circumcised at eight days old, and I'm the one who, who got the live back. Um, right, Israel well, though, now, is more clear, right? He says, no, I could have resisted and I didn't, and huh, you get the sense is sort of stopped by this, right? He doesn't really have a good counter-argument, because it is true, right, that 13-year-olds have the power to make choices and resist in a way that eight-day-old boys can't, and so... Yitrach doesn't have anything to say back to Ishmael. So instead we're told, At that point in time Yitrach sort of said to himself, If only God would reveal God's self to me, If only God would reveal that self to me and say, You should cut off one of your limbs. So look that case. I would not delay. I would do exactly what God said. God says, actually, in
1: the end, I will, in
0: fact, ask you to sacrifice yourself, and you will not. Hold back, you will uh, you will not delay to do it. So there's, I think, two things happen over here that are kind of interesting. One is that you do get the sense that there's almost like a one-upsmanship between Ishmael Ishmael, and Yitzhak. Each one wants to sort of suffer more to prove their loyalty to God, right? Ishmael says, Look, it was harder for me. I was searching, first of all, and I knew the pain exactly as you suggested, and also I had the ability to resist and I didn't. And Yitzhak feels kind of bad about that. He wants to be able to show that he also would do the same thing, but he's already circumcised. So what can he do? He says, oh, if only God would ask something bigger of me, I would do it. I would cut off one of my limbs. And God says, well, you know, you will be asked to make this. I'll give you the opportunity to do this. Um, So so two things I think are are, are worth noting over here, right? One is that there is a sense that... um, in order for Yitzhak to sort of be proven as the true child, it seems like we want him to be willing to sort of suffer in the way that Yishmael does, right? And I think that's true not just in terms of the different dates of the circumcision, but also there is a sense that if in the chapter before Yishmael almost died, right, there's almost a sense that Yitzhak is going to need to have something similar happen to him in order to sort of be proven in some manner. And also I think there's a sense that there's something very difficult in the story about Abraham choosing to sacrifice his son without Yitzhak really agreeing verbally at all to it. And so one way that the Midrash kind of finesses that is by having Yitzhak say oh, I would do this, you know, and then in that way, it's, it's almost like Yitzhak is giving his, his, his agreement to it. Um, but but I think that to start with, the, 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 the Midrash kind of sets up the binding of Yitzhak. It's somehow a response to Ishmael's story, right? There's a sense that Yitzhak also wants to show that he's willing to sacrifice everything, in, you know, in a way that will sort of of be similar to Yishmael, if not, if not more so. Um, the second redaction over here is also from Reishi Rabbah. This one actually um, already takes place at, as Abraham and Yitzhak are traveling to the mountaintop where, where the, the binding will happen. So we'll told we'll over here in source number two. Balo Samael, Abraham Samael is the, uh, the evil angel, right, another name for Satan. He comes to Abraham and he says to him, Ma sabah, oh, that is libech, right? Grandfather, old man, have you lost your heart, right? Have you lost, you know, all feeling? Ben the Kushana, the son that was given to you when you were 100 years old? at you're going now to slaughter him. right? Have you lost your mind, right? What are you doing? Which is really a fine question, right, to be asking. And Abraham responds and says, I'm not king. Even so, I'm going to do it, right? Even if it seems crazy, I'm going to do this. Amarlo, um, so now... Uh, Samael slash Satan says to him, Vimin are Right? He says, look, Abraham, you think this is going to be the last of the texts, right? If you do this, God's just going to make it even harder for you, right? You it, h- how long can you keep this up, right? If you, um, if God tests you again after this, are you going to be able to do that as well, right? In other words, don't think it's just this and then you'll be done, right? You know, the more you do it, the more God will test you. And so, who knows what you'll have to do after this? And Abraham says, are al-king, right? Even more so I'd be willing to do, right? Whatever God asks me to do, even more, it's hard to imagine what will be more than this, but even more than this I would be to do. So now, Satan says to him, Lemachar Omer Damim Well, if you kill Yitzchak today, maybe tomorrow God will turn on you and say, Avram, you are a Shopech Damim, you're a spiller of blood, you're a murderer, right? And therefore, you'll be liable for, for murder, right? Because here you are killing your son, right? How do you know that God won't tell you that this was the wrong thing to do, right? How do you know that this is really what God wants or that God won't Still hold you responsible for killing Yitzhak. And Abraham says, I'm the not king. even so, I'm going to do it. Once Satan sees that he is not achieving any effect with Abraham, he instead decides to go and uh, try to dissuade Yitzhak. He says, Oh, you poor son, Are you, your father is going to kill you. And Mitzlah says to him, Amenachim, even so, I will go. Amarlo, in kol otan asat imech. So Satan now says to him, Well, if you're killed by your father, all those fine garments that your mother made you, right, because she loves you so much, Who's going to get all your nice clothes, Yishmael, the one that your mother hates? He's going to inherit them. Right? This is a tricky thing to say, right? You know, if you're not here, right, then Ishmael goes back to being the heir. And all, all the love that your mother has for you, that is kind of shown by all the, the beautiful garments that she's made for you, they're all going to go to Ishmael. And now the Midrash does this very interesting line. It says, Kad lo mila palga. Sometimes if a word is not fully effective, it's a little bit effective, right? Palga means sort of halfway, halfway effective. Right, and um, and now Yitzhak starts to have misgivings, um, and we're told by well, Yomer Yitzhak. Well, let's stop here for one second. What about this line? Do you think would give Yitzhak misgivings? Right? Why is it so effective to say all those nice clothes that your mother made for you? you Ishmael, the one who she hates, is going to inherit. Why do you think that's the sort of chosen way to get to Yitzhak?
1: And uh, that's the an interest in his success, too. He can't just discount her. He looks at her, maybe for sustenance. And uh, mm-hmm. he's got an interest in, in preserving what she's, she's molded him. She's done for him. Mm-hmm. she's him stuff. Yeah. And she has an interest in him. And he has he to owe her something. So he has yeah. to feel to he owes her and I
0: think, so I think first of all bringing Sarah into the story is very interesting right because it's a way of saying look you it's not just about you and what you're willing to give up yourself but think about the impact on your mother right which is certainly a very powerful thing to say but if you're just saying that, that, that Satan doesn't just say that right? Satan could just say hey tough. if you die what will become of your mother right? that would be an effective argument there's something slightly different in saying all those nice things that your mother made for you they're going to go to Yishmael who she really hates right which is I think a different sort of argument, right? It's not just think about your mother. I think there's this sense that there the kind of lingering kind of one upsmanship that we saw in the first midrash, right? Where there's a sense of rivalry, right? Where you know Utah really wants to prove himself even more than Ishmael, right? Over here there's a sense of well one way to frame the Akedah is that you are you are really, you know, sacrificing yourself even more than Ishmael did. But the other way to frame it is you're getting yourself out of the running, right? If you allow yourself to be killed, then who who wins the, the race to be the heir? Or who, like, you know, who, who gets that prize for that position? is going to be Ishmael, which is not just difficult for Yitzhak in terms of, you know, this rivalry with Ishmael. But think about how that will feel to your mother. Think about how it will feel to your mother if Yishmael, the one that she worked so hard to get rid of, is now going to come back, right? And I think one one thing that the Midrash suggests is that even though Abraham sent Yishmael away, Yishmael is still out there, right? He still sort of exists. He can still be brought back at at any moment, right? And Satan wants Yitzhak to know that, right? If you're gone, right, maybe your father won't mind so much because he has this other son, but think about your mother, right? All those beautiful things that she made for you, they're going to go to him and now this begins to sort of trouble Yitzhak. And so the Midrash goes on and says, right, even if Satan wasn't Fully effective, he was partially effective, Hakujitema, as the verse says, Abraham Yitzhak says to his father, Abraham, he says, My father. And then Midrash says, Lama Aviv Why does the verse say both? Yithaq said to Abraham, his father, my father, right? Why is it emphasizing the father relationship? Yitzhak wants his father to have mercy on him, right? Yitzhak has misgivings. He's not willing to say, no, I won't do this. But he wants to try to get his father to reconsider. So he says, my father. Hoping that now Abraham will say, what am I doing? I can't possibly kill my son, right? We should change our minds about this. Um, And so he says to his father, my father. So his father will have mercy. And then he says, See, right here is the fire and the wood. You know, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And as soon as Abraham hears Yitzchak asking this question, Abraham's response is, Yatsaf May he be drowned, the one who sort of provoked you, right? Abraham sort of has a sense that Satan's been after Abraham, and now he's also been after Yitzchak. So he says, you know, basically, curses Satan that he should be drowned. But then he says to Yitzchak, In any event, though, God will show, the animal that God um, that, you know for the sacrifice will be in love and if God doesn't choose another animal you my son will be the animal for the sacrifice right? it's a reading of right. the verse if you remember was Elohim God will show the animal for the sacrifice my son and then we break it in half and says God will show the animal for the sacrifice and if not the sacrifice is my son right you, my son, will be the animal for the sacrifice. And the Midrash ends by saying, The two of them walk together, right? So now, according to this Midrash, Yitzchak knows that he will be, right? It's quite possible that he will be the you know, he will be that which is sacrificed. And yet still they walk together, Zeli told the Zelishachit, one of them to slaughter and one of them to be slaughtered. And just, you know, the Midrash wants to wants us to know that Yitzchak is, is still agreeing despite this. Um, but I thought it was very interesting that when the Midrash tried to imagine right what would be the weak link, right? Where what would be the, the pressure point that that the Satan would really be able to push on? It wasn't the it wasn't the argument of, Avram, what are you doing killing your son that you waited so long to have? And it wasn't, you know, um, people or God will call you a murderer afterwards, and it wasn't even telling Yitzhak that he himself was being slaughtered. It was something about Ishmael getting the fine garments that Sarah made for, for Yitzhak. That was kind of the, the pressure point, and you get the sense that that. Um, I think this is one of the other moments where you, you see that in the midrash. Even though the story of Akedat Yitzchak is very much about Avram and Yitzchak, Yishmael is kind of in the background, and Sarah is as well. And the sort of dynamic of Sarah trying to sort of promote Yitzchak by getting rid of Yishmael kind of is, is, is in Yitzchak's mind over here, right? Because Yitzchak realizes that if he were to die, Yishmael might be called back, and what, what would that mean for Sarah? That you know that all of her hard work and all the beautiful things she made for her son would now you know go 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 to Hagar and
1: and, and we say that uh, yeah. with, with Yanko, he indicates the favor mm-hmm. and so this goes to China,
0: indicates the Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's a little bit clearer with Sarah, because she only has one son, right? It's not even that she has to sort of show that a people as opposed to somebody else, but the way that you demonstrate favor, right, I think is exactly by you know, creating very beautiful things. Yeah, totally. I mean, I remember, so I was the first grandchild in my family, and my grandmother knit all these sweaters, and I remember like, she taught me very proudly about them. Right? The way that you sort of, you know, one of the ways that you can show that you really love somebody is is by clothing them in, in a way that demonstrates that. Absolutely. Okay, so... These first two Midrashim kind of a little bit sort of hint at the presence of Ishmael and Sarah there. By far, though, the most famous connection of, of Sarah with the story of the Akheda is the sense that Sarah dies because of the Akheda, right? In the verses, we don't see that in the all, at all, right? In the verses, you have the Akheda, and then in the next chapter, chapter 23, there's a report that Sarah has died. But there's a very, very famous long-standing tradition that somehow Sarah's death is intimately connected to the Akedah and it's it's caused by the Akedah. Here are sort of two versions of it, right? Source number three on this page is also from Peter de Rabbi Eliezer. This is chapter 31 of it. We're told, When Abraham returned triumphantly from, from Haramoria, you know, from the binding of Isaac. <laughs> Samael, the evil angel, gets very angry. al Tabiados <laughs> Because this evil angel realizes that he was not effective in fulfilling the desire of his heart, which was which was to sort of uh, cancel or, or destroy Abraham's sacrifice, right? Samael wants to thwart Bind, wants to thwart the sacrifice of Isaac, wants to get Abraham to say that he's not going to do it. When, when he realizes that he has not been successful, he gets very angry. And so, how does he display his anger? Ma'asa, what does he do? Halach ba'amar ba'sara. The angel Samael goes and visits Sarah, and this is what he He says, Haloshimach ma'asa acharon ba'olam. Haven't you heard the latest news of what's been done in the world? Right? Always a scary introductory sentence. Sorry, haven't you heard the news? Haven't you heard what's been going on in the world? Sarah says, nope, no one's told me any news at all. Amarla, Abraham Abraham at Yitzchak b'no v'shachato. Avraham took his son Yitzchak and slaughtered him. And he offered him up on the altar as a, as a burnt offering. Sarah begins to, to cry and to wail, and right the Midrash goes on to talk about the connection between her wailing and the sound of the shafart. And her soul flies away from her and she dies. And Abraham comes back, you know, theory triumphantly from Haramoriya, right, thinking that he has now sort of passed all of God's tests and given all these great blessings, now things will be good for him. And what does he discover when he comes home? He finds that Sarah has died. Umehanba, right, because the, um, in uh, chapter 23, we're told that when Sarah dies, we're told Abraham comes to, to mourn for Sarah. And the Midrash says, Where did he come from? He came from from, from Mount Moriah, where the binding of Isaac happened. Or, Abraham is to Sarah, as the verse says, he comes to to mourn for her and to cry for her. So, a couple of things I think are very interesting about this, right? One, one is that you do get the sense that um, that uh, on the one hand, right, the sacrifice of, the binding of Isaac is a, is a triumphant story for Abraham, right? He passes the test, he gets this great blessing, right? But it seems that the ultimate tragedy of the story, right, in this Midrash is the death of Sarah, right? He doesn't, right, it's not, no one emerges unscathed from the story, right? And the character who sort of most bears the brunt of the Echidah is the one who isn't even mentioned in the story at all, right? The story doesn't mention Sarah even once, it's all about Abraham and Yitzchak, but in the world of the, of the Midrash, the person who really kind of suffers the most over here is Sarah, right? and in this story she suffers in a very straightforward way right basically Satan lies to her he lies to her he says hey you know what happened your son was killed by your husband Sarah hears it and first of all she totally believes it right she knows her husband is capable of this but right? she doesn't say no that would have never happened she, as soon as she hears it she begins to cry and mourn and she's so upset that her soul flies out of her and she dies and Abraham comes home afterwards and, and finds that she has died Um. so yeah, so you know, basically Satan has lied to her. She thinks that Yitzchak, you, you know, has been killed by Abraham, and so and so she dies. And so the what what might have been a very kind of happy ending to the story kind of becomes much more dark, right? You know, there, there isn't a good ending if Sarah has has died as a result of it. Um, on the next page, uh, source number four is actually even a little bit more complex, right? It has a similar, similar uh, take to it. This is from Rabba, the Midrash came on that are also relatively early, probably from that same time period of around 500 or so uh, in the land of Israel. Um, This is actually part of a Midrash that has to do with um, the death of our own sons. And the Midrash begins actually by God asking, do you think you're going to be happy in this world? Even the most righteous people aren't happy. And it sort of describes... uh, Two, two stories one is the binding of Isaac leading to the death of Sarah and the other is the in theory triumphant day when the Mishkan is, uh, is erected and, and Aaron and his sons bring sacrifices and his two oldest sons die and so this is kind of part of that, that, that story over there. Um, this particular passage begins over here in source number four. For Natale di trak the hori right? So Avram takes his son he leads him up mountains and down hills. Right, there's a sense, there's a whole journey, right? They're going up and down, they're traveling together. He allows alach harim. Eventually, he uh, brings them up on top of one of the mountains. Ubanam is bech. He built an altar there. V'sider itzim. He arranges all the wood. Baarach <speaking> marachav. In a talit hasakina, love the shochato. Right? He arranges the wood. He prepares the altar pile. He takes his knife in order to slaughter Yitzchak. The elevation anah alav min hashamayim. V'amar lo alti shalach yadcha. Kfar hayan ishkat. And were it not the case that the angel called out to him from heaven and said, don't, you know, don't harm this boy, don't stretch her, don't lift your hand against the boy, y- Yitzchak definitely would have been killed, right? There's a sense that Aram is being very deliberate, right? He travels up and down, he does all the different actions, he is ready to kill Yitzchak. He would not have hesitated, he was totally going to do it, and had the angel not stopped him, he definitely would have killed him. Now the Midrash says, who came, know that this is true. Know that it's really the case that Abraham actually would have killed Yitzchak. How do we know this? Because once Yitzchak comes back from the Akedah, he goes to his mother, and his mother, Sarah, says to him, where were you, my son? I haven't seen you in a while. What were you doing? Where were you? And Bishaq tells her, Nitalani Abba. Father took me, the harim, Harimbaidani Boat. He took me up mountains and down you know, down valleys and uh and you know, took the wood and arranged the wood and put me on a pile and almost killed me and um, and when he gets to the end of the story now clearly the story ends with him being alive right? because he's there telling her this story when he gets to the end of the story she says to him woe to you the son of a, of a, of a sad or hapless woman had the angel of God not appeared to say you would have been killed is that really what happened he says yeah that really is what happened right? I, I almost died it was crazy um, at that point in time when Sarah hears that Yitraq was almost killed had it not been for this last minute intervention of the angel he would have died she cries out six cries that are, uh, that are related to the six blasts of the shofar She didn't even manage to finish the sixth cry right she was still wailing when she died as the first says Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to cry for her where was he coming from who came from uh, from Haramoria from the end of the, the binding yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There is a geographical discrepancies <coughs> with all of this because they come down and Abraham goes running off to Beersheba mm-hmm. in one
1: direction Sarah Died mm-hmm. in the
0: bush, not at all. Well, she might have died under but It's not clear where she is at the point that she dies,
1: right?
0: Um, no. Well, we know that she's buried in Keren but we don't. We, we know that she. Right, we know that she's buried in Marat but it's not clear whether Abraham has sort of transported her there. But it's not clear where she is at the point that that he die, that she dies. No. Yeah. Oh, no, it does take period of No, I'm, so, I'm sorry. You're totally right. You're totally, totally right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're definitely right. And yeah. sorry uh, right. not uh, right. Yeah. Uh, this midrash goes have, um,
1: yes, yeah, run off to his mother, mm-hmm. so not to their so That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where Where did it go? It went to his mother. Right. Okay. But um, in terms of all of this happening, in right. Does really so Yeah, no, it is tricky, right? It's yeah. tricky because
0: Avram goes, goes to Beersheba. Well, I guess, I guess Avram goes to Beersheba, but maybe, I guess the I guess Midrash would suggest that Sarah was in Kira at Arba all along, and Yitzhak went to see her, and Avram, and maybe that's why it just says that Avram gets to Beersheba. It, it is a little tricky, right? It's,
1: it's a strange household yeah <laughs> very strange but no
0: and it's also strange because if the verses say that he goes to Beersheba then why do these M'drashim keep insisting that he's come from Haram or yeah, in order to yeah. to mourn her yeah I recall there being a very, very long Ramban at the beginning of Parshat Chayisarad where Ramban tries to piece through who is where at what point in time because the verses don't match up in, in an easy way. I guess you could say that he's, you know, coming from Hara might mean that he's coming kind of from the experience of Hara but maybe physically he's coming from Beersheva, right, that could be and it could be then, I guess that would be the way you work it out, right, you'd say Yitzhak you'd goes to see his mother. If you wanted this Midrash to really be juxtaposed with, you know, to juxtapose the death of Sarah with right after Adah Akeda, you'd say that Sarah was in Kiryat well, Arba. That's all mm-hmm.
1: where, where did Yitzhak Right, where
0: did well, Clearly he yeah. went to his mom, right? You mm-hmm. just want to see what's dad.
1: actually. Totally. Uh-huh.
0: Um, anyway, one thing that's very, I mean, a couple of things are very interesting about, about this Midrash, right? Again, you get the sense that kind of the main tragedy of Akeda Kedah Yitzhak is it's is it's, its impact on Sarah, right? That Sarah cannot survive this, right? Abraham is able to withstand this test, but Sarah, even just hearing about it, can. Um, another thing that's really interesting about this one is that in this one, she doesn't die because she thinks her son has been killed, right? In source number three, Satan lies to her and, you know, says that Yitzhak dies, that Yitzhak has been killed, and so she dies in grief. Over here, in source number four, um, she knows that Yitzhak is alive because he's the one telling her the story, right? He's come and he says... You're never going to believe what happened to me, right? I went with my father uphill, down valley. And he set up all this stuff. He was about to kill me. And if the angel hadn't said not to, I would have died. But the angel did say that, and he didn't die. And yet, the fact that this kind of almost happened is enough to... Um, is enough to kill Sarah, right? And Aviva Zornberg speaks very beautifully about this dress. She kind of talks about, I think her phrase is, she talks about kind of the vertigo of something that, the, the vertigo experience of something that almost happened, right? Sometimes there's a way in which knowing that you came very close to something terrible is as kind of destabilizing to your sense of the world as the thing actually happening. Um, um, And she talks about reading once a story about uh, two children who were playing with an arrow, with a bow and arrow, and one of them accidentally shot the other one, and the arrow kind of hit the child in such a way that, like, it sort of lodged like very close to the windpipe but somehow didn't right and she, she when she read that story she, she got kind of dizzy right with the sense of like this terrible thing you know almost happened and just very closely was, was averted I remember um, I remember reading she, so uh, she has an essay about this midrash and about this idea of vertigo in I don't know if you guys have seen it there's a very lovely book of essays um, about the Torah readings of Rosh Hashanah by uh, um, an assortment of women scholars I think it's called Beginning a New if you haven't, it's worth looking at. They're very interesting. So her essay in that book is specifically about this, and I remember reading it um, on that Rosh Hashanah right after September 11th, um, when it seemed that a lot of people had stories of I was almost there, right? I, I was almost there. Normally I'm there at that time of day, but I didn't for some reason, or I, normally I get off the train and go that way, but and and I think there is like a something crazy about this. I mean. We understand that when terrible things happen, that that is it's a cause for great grief. But there's also something very... Disorienting and destabilizing about the terrible thing that almost happened, right? There's a way in which that, that, that kind of has its own power. Um, and Aviva Zornberg reads this midrash in that way, right? There's a sense that Sarah is, is as kind of thrown off by the fact that it almost happened as if, as if it actually did happen. That's one way of reading it. The other way of reading it is maybe she's saying, my husband almost killed you? Isn't that really kind of the way the world works? Right? It might even just be that that knowledge itself is enough to, um, you know, to, to, to be to make her lose, lose herself in that way. Well, I was yeah.
1: was to say, it, it, it gives her a flash of an image of Abraham mm-hmm. that might be terrifying to her. Yeah. Not just the event itself, but that she capable of, it. or that, that God mm-hmm. would do that. that God uh, or God, right? God, God. So, this is the God we're worshipping and creates such a capricious Right. yeah, like yeah to That could to be. Mm-hmm. Totally. But totally. Yeah. I got ruled by the image of the tiger being 37. Mm-hmm. And now at 37, I have a totally different picture of this where if he's younger or if he's more influenced by his father, but his father can't physically bind mm-hmm. him if he's not green, His father yeah. can't physically put him on the altar if he's not. Yeah. A so it's a whole new picture to me. Yeah, yeah
0: totally. I mean, I think that's why the Midrash likes very much to have him be 37 because it gives him so much. A Agency. It means that he is totally agreeing to this. He's part of this, right otherwise. So it this thirty
1: seven year old who has consented to mm-hmm. be a part of this ritual mm-hmm. the come tell mother, look at the ritual I just consented yeah. to be a part uh, of that took yeah. yeah. a rough. Yeah, no,
0: that that could be also. That could be also I mean also I mean you have to think right, this story is really such a tragedy for each clap, right? He's coming home to sort of be comforted by his mother after this very scary experience, and then it turns out that the news that he gives her, you know, actually is the thing that causes her to die, right? There's something terrible about that also.
1: Um,
0: Okay, Uh, one last source over here, source number five. Um, This is one of my favorite Gemara's. I don't know if you guys have seen it, uh, but if not, I'm excited to get to share it to you. Um, Towards the end of of Abraham's life, we're told, Vashem beirach Abraham ba'kol. God blesses Abraham with everything. And the Gemara is interested in what, what does it mean, Bakhol? What is this everything that Avram is being blessed with? So, my bakhol, says the Gemara. What, what is bakhol? What is this everything? Rabbi Meir Omer, Shalohai Talobat. What is the great blessing that Abraham had? That he didn't have a daughter. Daughters are just trouble, right? So he was blessed with wealth, he was blessed with sons, and he was blessed in that he did not have a daughter. That's Rabbi Meir's opinion. Rabbi Huda Omer, Talobat. Rabbi Huda says, No, no. What does it mean that Abraham was blessed with everything? It means that he had a daughter, right? Because you can't possibly be blessed with everything if you don't have a daughter. And so he says, It must be that the blessing in all things was haitalo that he did in fact have a daughter others say bat Abraham ubakol Abraham in fact had a daughter and the daughter's name was bakol right and so when the verse says God blessed Abraham with everything right it's not with everything the verse says God blessed Abraham bakol it means God blessed Abraham with bakol the daughter whose name was bakol which is also an interesting now the Gemara goes on to say, desar a Other people say that no, it's not about daughters, right? It's not about having daughters, not about having daughters. What does it mean that God blessed Abraham with everything, right, and always? Shalom, Marad, Esav, B'Yamav. Right? What does it mean? It means that Esav, even though later on Esav rebels and becomes kind of a bad guy, it doesn't happen during Abraham's lifetime. Right? So what it means to be blessed in all ways for Abraham is that during his life, his family is is doing okay. Right? His grandchildren are good. Both are. Both of them are good, upstanding young men. And Esav only goes astray once. Um, once Abraham dies. In fact, there's another. There's a midrash in Briski Rabba that specifically links up Esav going astray with Abraham's death and that Abraham dies and that Midrash and Esau says, what? Even if my righteous grandfather could die? forget it. This world is, you know, not worth, you know, not set up in a good way and that's why he goes astray. But here it's just that uh, Esau, Esau remains a good kid. He doesn't rebel during Abraham's lifetime. Devar another understanding of what it means for God to bless Abraham in all ways, is she asayi Ishmael Ishmael repented during Abraham's life, right? The Gemara assumes that Ishmael had previously been a sinner, right? Remember we saw that famous Midrash and Beresh that lists all the different possible terrible sins that Ishmael was doing, right? Maybe he was a idolater, maybe he was a rapist, maybe he was a murderer, but he has now repented and become good, right? He's sort of come, you know, I'm a good kid. And that is Abraham's true blessing in all ways, right? That both of his sons are, um, are, are good people. Um, how do we know that Ishmael did Chuba, that he repented during his father's life? Because the verse says in Genesis 25, that Abraham when he dies is buried by Yitzchak and by Yismael, and the Gemara is very interested in the order of the of the names over here, right? He's buried by Yitzchak and by Yismael, his sons. Uh, Right? Why does it say Yitzchak first? Uh, the says, well, maybe the verse is just listing them by how wise they were, right? Yitzchak is sort of more wise than Ishmael, and so even though he was born second, he gets listed first. It doesn't mean that Ishmael is sort of making way for Yitzchak at all. It just means that the verse is choosing to list them in the order of their, of their chokma, of their wisdom. And then the Gemara says, Well, no, actually, because when Yitzhak dies, we're told, His sons Esav and Yaakov bury him. In that case, if in general, the verses in the Torah list the sons in the order of wisdom, you would think that Yaakov should come before Ishmael, just like Yitzchak is coming before Ishmael. So rather, it's not that the verses are making choices about the order of wisdom, rather, rather, the fact that Yitzchak's name comes first means that Yitzchak made way for him. Ishmael said, no, no, Yitzchak, you go first in the burial. Um, and given that Yishmael is making way for him, that must mean that Yishmael repented during Abraham's lifetime.
1: Now, this is
0: kind of a very loaded Gemara, right? But first of all, the assumption that what it would mean to repent is to sort of concede that Yitzhak is the true heir is an interesting idea about repentance, right? It almost reminds me in that, uh, that Midrash that we saw, right? Maybe the you know, might be that you know, Yitzhak that Ishmael's only sin was that he did not want to sort of claim Yitzhak as a primary son, right? He wanted the position himself. Remember, um, uh, I think it was it, I think it was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, right? He said, I have a positive reading of this. I just think that Yishmael, you know, said, why are you making such a big deal about Yitzhak? I'm really the, you know, the, the firstborn son. So here, right, according to this Gemara, what it means for Yishmael to repent is to sort of give Yitzhak primacy of place to let him sort of go first in, in the burial. Um, and um And the assumption is that if that constitutes Shuvah, then for Abraham, what it means you know to be blessed with with everything is that Ishmael kind of has has repented in this manner um, so you know it's one, one way to read it as, as sort of repentance in a very straight way. I think the other way to read it is that um, there's some amount of contention during Abraham's life about who his actual heir is going to be, right? First, he thinks it's Ishmael. Um, Sarah doesn't want to be Ishmael. She has Ishmael sent away. There's a lot of pain for Abraham in doing that. Then Abraham almost loses his next heir when he, you know, when he almost has to kill him. Um, So maybe what it means for Abraham at the end of his life to be blessed in everything is that these matters of succession have been worked out for him, right? Yitzhak is... Is his primary covenantal child and Ishmael is okay with that, right? Ishmael sort of found a place to be and a way to be in the world that, you know, allows Yitzhak to be the covenantal child but still gives Ishmael like a, you know, a, a connection to his father and, and a place in the world and that, um, I think for the Midrash for this Gemara that might be for Avram what it means to be blessed in all, in all manners, right? You know, the, the major questions of succession that are occupying so much of, of Abraham's life at the end of his life have been worked out in a way that both of his sons are, are satisfied with and you know that that could be, um, you know, that could be sort of the, the total blessing that Abraham has at the end of his life. Um, I think if we think back to sort of why we have, you know, why the Torah reading for the two days of Rosh Hashanah are these two stories, it's, it's an interesting way to think about it, right? That it seems that part of you know part of the discussion in the sending away, away of Ishmael and the, and the almost killing of, of Yitzhak is this question of you know, who is, who is Abraham's actual heir going to be, and you know. You, will he have one at all is you know, the first question and then you know which one will it be and the, the assumption of the Gemara and Baba Vajra is that by the end of Abraham's life it, it, it all gets worked out well um, one thing that, that it is important to know and maybe this is maybe the last thing we talk about today um, the, you know Rosh Hashanah originally was only one day it originally, was supposed to be a one day holiday, and then because of confusion about you know, sort of which day it was going to be, because it wasn't clear when the new month was going to start, it became, and there wasn't enough time to let up, everybody know when the new month had been declared, becomes a, a two day holiday. But back when Rosh Hashanah was only a one day holiday, the reading for Rosh Hashanah is just chapter 21. It's just the story of, uh, of the sending away of Ishmael. Um, and only once Rosh Hashanah becomes two days do we bring in the, the second story of chapter 22, which is the binding of Yitzhak, which is interesting because most people tend to think of the binding of Yitzhak as kind of the primary reading and you know well there are two days so we go back one chapter for the other one um, but it seems like originally the binding of, of, of sorry the sending of Ishmael was kind of the, the main reading um, and I think probably there might be two reasons for that one is that if you remember chapter 21 begins with God remembering Sarah redeeming her and giving her this child and so there's a there's a sense that that is something we like to think about in Rosh Hashanah like right? God remembering and redeeming us but I think there's also a way in which the actual story of the Sending way of Ishmael and, and, and the saving of Ishmael is really important for Shuhanana. you remember um, when, uh, when you know, Hagar sort of throws Ishmael under this bush because she can 't bear to see him to see him die, God, the angel of God calls out to her and says um, um, uh, don't uh, don't cry Hagar um, because God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Um, I think one of the things that the verse is telling us is that um, and first of all, it's interesting, we don't hear Ishmael crying, right? The, the narrator only tells us about who crying, but God, God hears Ishmael. Um, and I think maybe one of the points of the story is that um, it's not so surprising to us that Yitzhak survives the Akedah, right? Because Yitzhak is kind of the main character, right? He's the covenantal heir, he's the one who's necessary for the story to, to go forward, and the fact that God is sort of looking out for him and, you know, make sure that he's okay is, isn't so surprising. I think there's something very comforting for us about the fact that Ishmael is also heard, right? even the people who aren't kind of the main characters they're not necessarily the people who are sort of you know the main storyline God listens to everyone right and you know whether you are you know no matter who you are, God will hear you, and I think that maybe that might be one of the other reasons why that was selected as a key reading for Shishana, Right, the sense of everybody who calls out to God can be heard by God, and it doesn't matter even if you know even if Yishmael's own mother can't bear to hear him, God God will hear him. And so I think there's a sense that um, that's supposed to be sort of encouraging for all of us as we go into Hashanah. Um And then the second story of the binding of Yitzhak sort of gets added in for the second day, um, providing us all with a lot to think about, certainly. Um, Okay, so let's stop here. Uh, We don't have class next Tuesday, as it is right before Rosh Hashanah, but the following Tuesday before Yom Kippur, we'll be looking at uh, the Book of Yom which is part of the Torah reading
1: for Yom Kippur. Thank you so much.